Okay, well, welcome to podcast number four. And um, I know that's really confusing to a lot of people because podcast number one will probably stay in some sort of secret archives because we just haven't figured out how to release that yet. So we're working on it, but this is actually the fourth time we've recorded. So, so today, um, as a huge hockey fan, I've compelled Genevieve to spend most of today's podcast talking about incidents in ice hockey and uh, the NHL. I know a lot of times of the four major sports, people always say, look, hockey players, they're so regular, nice guys. And it's true. They are just like us. They get into legal trouble, too. <laughs> they actually mentioned that on um, the Bachelor Pad on the Bill Simmons Podcast Network, where uh, Juliet Littman and Mrs. Sports Gal or Sports yeah. Gal were talking about how hockey players were like more ordinary dudes. Right. I think they were saying the one woman on bachelor, on the Bachelor, JoJo, she's a real alpha, so she needs somebody who's like, wealthy kind of famous but not too famous and they thought a hockey player would be a perfect guy for her so um tune into the bachelor we're not being sponsored by them (laughs) no but like uh as we were gonna discuss today you know hockey players aren't necessarily as squeaky clean or no they uh, free from crime as we'd like to think or projecting on Maybe because they're Canadian. I don't know. Uh, you know, having lived in Canada for a few years, they are shockingly nice people and they really will apologize for anything. I have a number of Canadian friends and their joke is you could punch them in the face and they would still apologize for it. So, um, so yeah, they do come off as very just like regular beer drinking dudes. Um, and nonetheless, that can lead to a lot of trouble as we uh, found out during our research for this week's pod. Um, So I think the first topic we wanted to talk about, since it's actually an on-ice issue, is with um, Dennis Weidman of the Calgary Flames. Um, Dennis got into trouble a few weeks ago where he um, appeared to have suffered some kind of head trauma and refused to leave the game. Um, And then he eventually cross-checked a referee in the back quite violently um, and was suspended indefinitely. This happened just before the NHL All-Star game. So there was a break in the season. The league didn't seem to feel a real rush to um, reach a decision on this. And um, he eventually was suspended for 20 games um, for his assault on referee Don Henderson. Um, so one of the issues that has come up is that essentially the NHL Players Association is appealing the 20-game suspension uh, because they're saying that Weidman is accused of violating Rule 20, which is deliberately striking an official. And the PA's position is he was concussed from the hit that he received in the game probably, what, 30, 40, 50 seconds before he cross-checked this linesman. And because he was concussed... Um, what he did to the linesman actually wasn't deliberate because he had no idea what he was doing. Right. And so, you know, the NHL, um, while they did in their decision, they did acknowledge that he probably had suffered a concussion. They That didn't um, uh, mitigate the um, intent with which he acted in, you know, hitting um, the ref or the linesman um, with his stick. Part of it was, uh, they, you know, the sort of commentators were thinking that um, Weidman showed absolutely no remorse immediately after um, the incident saying, you know, I just kind of didn't didn't know what I was doing, you know, whatever, not acting sorry at all. Um, The other aspect of this, though, is that if you were to say that you can, if you suffer from head trauma and therefore you're not responsible for your actions, it sets a pretty dangerous precedent in a game like hockey where people 
are suffering probably minor head traumas in every play. Um, one of the things that you touched on was the lack of remorse. He didn't, uh, Weidman didn't apologize to the linesman until last Thursday. Wow, I didn't realize there was that long of a uh, yeah, so, time span. Yeah, wow. so yeah. it was, what, two plus weeks, weeks. three weeks yeah. before he apologized to the guy. Even if you didn't do it on purpose, you would think that you'd still apologize once you saw the video of you like literally lowering your body and just smashing into the wall. Right, and that's a big thing when talking about um, whether he acted intentionally or not that the NHL seemed to focus on was that it wasn't like he's skating along at a really fast pace and the guy just kind of got in his way and he made a move to avoid him. It was, if you, you know, watching the video, he very deliberately slammed into this guy, knocking him to the ground and, you know, setting aside the fact that it was a linesman that he hit, Cross-checking just in general is not allowed in the game. You would have gotten a penalty for that. Um, certainly, they place a higher uh, penalty on um, hitting referees mm-hmm. and linesmen since you're not supposed to beat up the officials. That's, that's a bad precedent. But <laughs> Yeah, well, exactly. He wasn't – so they're playing the Predators, right? So the linesman yeah. was like zebra stripes. Um, right. It had taken place – at least several seconds after Weidman had been hit, and he was skating, according to the NHL, fairly deliberately towards the bench, like knocked his stick on the ice, letting them know that he was coming in for a line change, and then like leveled up and then just slammed into the dude. And another important factor, which I think raises some questions for the league, is um, sort of how its concussion protocol worked in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, under the league's concussion protocol, which was uh, amended pretty recently to add what they refer to as concussion spotters mm-hmm. to make sure that there are folks who are trained by the league to see if people are suffering from the signs of a concussion. Um, as my, I understood it, this wasn't something voluntary. If someone comes along and says, you appear to have suffered a concussion, mm-hmm. Dennis, get off the bench, you're going to what's called the quiet room to sit and be observed. Um, a player couldn't just opt out of that and say, you know, go away. I... I'm fine. Um, But apparently that's what happened in this case. So um, reading the NHL's concussion protocol, it's actually not that clear because, so you have spotters that are league spotters and then you also have team spotters. Right. So you have multiple sets of eyes like surveying the ice at all times. But um, so the spotter can trigger the action of having, um, you know, a, a medical person go and talk to the player. But the person who's talking to the player basically is relying on the player to like in their conversation to indicate whether or not they have symptoms or exhibiting symptoms. So yes, Um, being hit is like, you know, the thing that sort of triggers this domino effect, but it's really like talking to the player and trying to figure out, you know, is he, does he have blurry vision or like what the other signs of a possible concussion. So it sounds like the player does have some control over whether or not he wants to go into the quiet room. Okay, well, that's actually, it's interesting that you, um, I appreciate you clarifying that, because I was really struggling with kind of this idea of, can Dennis Wyman really be held responsible for his actions if he, you know, the if the system truly failed him and they let him just continue playing even though he was injured and isn't supposed to have an option to continue playing, um, and if he was truly suffering from some kind of, like, mental uh, a breakdown temporary as it may be when he hit the referee, can he be held responsible for that? And, you know, now, I don't know. I feel like this is a grown man who, you know, had an opportunity to say, Oh no, I'm hurt. I probably shouldn't be out here. And he didn't take that opportunity. And Mm -hmm. then he went out and injured somebody. And you know what, buddy, you got to suffer the consequences of your actions. Yeah. I feel, 
I guess I feel worse for the referee who got the crap knocked out of him than I really do for Dennis Wideman, in spite of the fact that he um, has never um, done anything like this before in his mm-hmm. career, which I think was a big part of his defense in the initial hearing and before um, Commissioner Gary Bettman, who heard the initial appeal yes. of the suspension. Yeah, so they, from some of the articles that I've read, they think that they took that into account, His essentially his history of like not having right. done this before and that's why he was suspended for the minimum which is 20 games because right. it could be much higher than that um which it's still like half a million dollars to dennis weidman 20 games um so they think that you know the lack of be- a pattern of behavior like this was what got him the 20 games instead of something higher because i can imagine had it been some other enforcer it was rafi torres <laughs> uh we would probably never be seeing him in the nhl again that's yes, true exactly. yes so, um, so I guess the next step in the process is after the appeal to Bettman. Um, if Bettman reduces, he can reduce his suspension, or he can just like hold it at twenty games. But if it if he does reduce it, and it, but it's still over six games, it goes to the NHL's neutral arbitrator. Right, which um, I think we talked about in one of our prior podcasts, the arbitration system in the NFL, which. Um, or maybe this is just a conversation you and I were having amongst ourselves, which makes me feel like we're Bill Sims and Jim Nance right now. Uh, but the so in the NFL, Roger Goodell, the commissioner, is the ultimate arbiter of any discipline issue. Um, and part of that was uh, in the Deflategate situation. I believe the judge did cite to the fact that it's not truly an independent sort of process um, in overturning Goodell's um, uh, suspension of Tom Brady, whereas here you have you know you have a situation where the commissioner has given up a little bit of power. The ultimate decision maker in certain cases is an independent, neutral third party. But mm-hmm. presumably, if the um, arbitrator were to find uphold the suspension for as long as it was set for, um, that would be incredibly difficult to overturn if the NHLPA decided to fight it in court. Uh, yes, and interestingly, this would be the first time any sort of discipline has actually gone to the neutral arbitrator in the NHL's like recent history. Wow. So they did enter into, and I want to say their contract was maybe 2012, the newest um, collective bargaining agreement, so that would make sense. I'm trying to think through... They've had some major discipline issues, including with Rafi Torres. Um, but yeah, I guess it kind of makes sense where here you're trying to um, sort of defend the ability for players who are injured to sort of get out from under whatever punishment they might suffer. Um, it seems like this is a, a big fight for the NHLPA, so they're going to want to yeah. push forward with it. I think part of the NHL's decision, or at least the pan- the the initial decision that was made about the 20 games, they they acknowledged that he had a concussion, that he had a diagnosed concussion, but they didn't seem to think that that was a mitigating factor um, because of, again, pointing out the deliberateness with which he was moving, the, the calling out the line change, and then sort of the... You know, he wasn't, like, skating really fast and clipping the guy. He literally squared up and did it. Um, so, and the NHL essentially said even if we are concussed, we're responsible for our own actions, which I don't think that's actually how the, like, you know, the... It's probably not how your brain works, no. but... Um, as, as was evidenced on an episode of Grey's Anatomy this week, right? Right, although that guy, I thought, entered some kind of, like, fugue state because he oh. had a seizure, so... Um, 
but yeah, still your brain's getting scrambled right that's true yeah you know i have to say i mean this is probably taking it i'm making a little bit of a leap here but when i was thinking about dennis weidman i was taken back to i want to say it was the 2012 presidential election where ron paul was getting up and talking about how like medical insurance is kind of basically a luxury not a right and his I think it was his campaign manager who couldn't afford insurance or chose not to buy it, got pneumonia and died. And all these people started cheering for him when he told the story. It was horrifying. It was, <laughs> it, it was one of the presidential debates. Maybe it was in 2008. I probably should have looked this up before I started talking about it. Point being, though, is that my thought at that point was, you know what, folks, if you make a decision that there's affordable insurance out there and you don't want to buy it, fine. Then when you get sick, don't go to the emergency room where the taxpayers are going to have to pay for you to get medical care. Mm -hmm. Like, you made a decision. Now you have to live with it, yeah. even if that means you stay home and die from something that's <laughs> eminently curable. And I kind of felt the same way about Dennis Wyman. Like, dude, you had an opportunity to go and get help. And mm -hmm. in your infinite wisdom, or because you were suffering from brain trauma and nobody stepped in to stop you... You just had to keep on playing, and you assaulted somebody, and you broke a very serious rule in the NHL. They've got to stick up for their linesmen. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, you made your bed, you know, lie in it with your concussed self. So, um, interestingly, earlier, I think this week, um, there was this not doesn't quite rise to the level of what Dennis Weidman did, but um, Nazem Kadri, who plays for the Toronto Maple Leafs, was uh, hit by Mark Giordano, who happens to be Weidman's teammate in the Calgary Flames. Um, looked like a pretty clean hit, but Kadri got back to the bench and made a throat-slashing gesture oh, yeah, I at saw that. Mark Giordano. Um, and when they asked him about it later on in the you know post-game press conference, or they don't really have press conferences, when they were interviewing him after the game, he said, oh, well, I was very fuzzy. <laughs> I don't really remember what happened. I think I just said, like... I've got my eye on you or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, he has since been fined $5,000 for, you this know, gesture. mimicking like he was going to kill somebody. Kill somebody. So, um, again, it's kind of, you know, you're seeing players who are trying to use this. Oh, I like smacked my head and now I'm acting like a crazy person, but I can't be held responsible for it. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out. Hey, can I ask you an unrelated question sure. about the Toronto Maple Leafs? Yes. Why is it the Toronto Maple Leafs and not the Toronto Maple Leaves? It's a really good question that I don't have an answer to. Not sure. Okay. We can look into that for the next show. <laughs> All right. I, I, I see it. I think to myself, why aren't you leaves? But. Yeah. I mean, they've been around. So they're one of the or, original six. Original six, which as a one of my favorite podcasters, Jeff Merrick, likes to refer to them the arbitrary six <laughs> since there were a variety of other um, oh, teams. Oh, teams of the existence. Oh, okay. Right. So, um, or, you know, there were different iterations of the NHL before it became the NHL that we know today. But yeah, I'm not sure why hmm. they're the Leafs and not the Leaves. I probably should know that, but we, we can take a look at it and we'll get back to you next time. So I think part of this stems from the fact that Burke grew up on the East Coast and I grew up in California and hockey is not that big of a thing out here, although we have had the Sharks for a number of years now. I mean, tw uh, yeah, more than 20. Yeah, yeah, I just, because it wasn't like around when I was eight, like I just didn't pay attention to it or, um, but I did get into hockey when I moved and lived in the Midwest for a while because they had, like where I was living, they had the Red Wings, so that was some of the years in which they were winning Stanley Cups and fell in love with Stevie Eiserman and Brendan Shanahan. So uh, so I'm not completely a neophyte when it comes to this, but pretty close. So um, so that's the Dennis Weidman thing, really. It's, the thing that really strikes me is, like, 
why did it take you almost three weeks to apologize? Yeah, I mean, if that's, if your defense is going to be, well, I, it was, mis- you know, I didn't know what I was doing. You would think that there would be no concern with coming out and apologizing immediately and just saying, like, I had no idea what was going yeah. on in my head. You still apologize for accidents. I mean. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, which actually happened in Grey's Anatomy this week. The guy immediately apologized and it was fine. So. <laughs> they were all good. Yes. All right. So the next hockey player is Mike Richards. And Mike Richards is, uh, he's interesting for a number of reasons, so. Yeah, I don't even know. I there were, I was trying to kind of figure out where to start with Mike Richards, and I just, I just don't know, because you've got employment issues with, like, appropriate relationships between bosses and the people that they're supervising, and, you know, some, you know, I can, sort of obvious legal issues, but, um, so the story with Mike Richards is he was playing for the LA Kings, um, had been playing for them for, I want to say three or four years. And over the summer, he was arrested at the U S Canadian border and charged with carrying Oxycontin across the border. So a prescription drug, but without having a personal prescription for the medication he had on him. The LA Kings used this as an opportunity to void his contract, um, for material breach, which, as we talked about last time, is one of those catch-all provisions that, you know, the kind of exception can swallow everything else. So um, the NHLPA almost immediately grieved the um, voiding of the contract, you know, based on a concern that if this constitutes a material breach, then basically anything can constitute a material breach. And I know other NHL team owners were equally upset over this uh, voiding of the contract because they really looked at it like... Mike Richards was a great player, and they yeah. signed him to this really long-term deal. He had this bump with the law, right. um, and we'll talk about why it could be just a bump. But the LA Kings got out of a really lengthy contract with him, and he just hadn't been producing recently. Mm-hmm. So if they could void that contract, you know, like they didn't owe him the money, like it probably would have come off their cap, and there's just a whole lot of repercussions on the ownership end. Right. And so one of the controversies at the time that this happened, beyond the fact that this didn't seem to rise to the level, necessarily rise to the level of material breach of the contract, was under the prior, under the most recent um, uh, collective bargaining agreement, every team was given what were called two compliance buyouts, um, which you could basically buy out a player who had like an insane contract and get them effectively off your books at a very minimal cost to the team. So that way you would be more able to efficiently manage your salary cap. You can still buy out the the window for those compliance buyouts. is pretty short. You can still buy out players, but the um, impact on your salary cap goes on for longer. Long story short is that the uh, Kings GM, for whatever reason, um, and we'll talk about him a little bit more um, shortly, decided not to buy out Mike Richards. And then to Genevieve's point, um, it seemed like this, you know, bump with the law caused them to void his contract. And it just, it stunk. It just smelled really, really failed the smell test um, because it did seem like they were just trying to get his enormous contract off of their books so that they would have room to re-sign. Um, one of the players who was undoubtedly, I think their top uh, forward, Andre Kopitar, who recently signed for like eight years and $80 million. Mm-hmm. So... So um, on the contract issue, Richards and the Kings did reach a settlement agreement. Um, you know, he will stay on the 
the king's salary until like 2031. But only at like half a million dollars a year or something. Yeah, or maybe up to like a million dollars. But yeah. it is like an inconsequential amount of money when you're talking about, you know, Kopitar's contract is $80 million. Right. Um, so that's, so that was like that portion of it. Um, the bump really, like the legal bump is, uh, so, you know, it's illegal in Canada to... Trans have OxyContin without a prescription? Right. I think the hook for them in arresting Mike Richards was the fact that he had a prescription drug but didn't have any prescription mm. for the pills that he was carrying with him. Um, the ultimate penalty for him, I believe it is a felony um, in Canada transporting drugs across international borders <laughs> without a prescription. Um, Seems very locked up abroad to me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe he'll have to go out and, like, chop wood as his hard labor. I'm not <laughs> sure. But um, I think the real problem would be for Richards is if he's convicted of this, he could um, could really screw up his visa and his ability to work in the United States. Um, so, you know, that's something that he may be more incentivized to fight this because I'm not sure that it's a particularly severe legal penalty mm-hmm. in Canada. Um, um, but one of the things that... I wanted to raise is that yeah he had a he had prescription oxy on him but he could have gotten it from any number of sources like team doctors could have prescribed it if he had a lingering injury so the fact that he didn't exactly have a personalized prescription doesn't necessarily mean that it was in like unlawful illegal yeah, right and you position. know this um, sort of the well the NHL wants to uh, assert that it doesn't have the same kind of drug problems that other leagues have. Uh, a few summers ago, anyone who follows hockey would probably be aware of this. Um, there was a rash of, um, enforcers and fighters who either died from overdoses or committed suicide. And stories started to kind of leak out about the, uh, proliferation of prescription painkillers in the NHL that, you know, you have locker rooms or training rooms that just have like jars upon jars of medication um, for these guys. So the where Mike Richards actually got his drugs, we don't know, but they very well could have come from the LA Kings training staff and then to kind of hold that against him in uh, mm-hmm. avoiding his contract and, you know, kicking him out in his ass seems really inappropriate. Um, the NHL of the four major sports in America, uh, football, basketball, baseball, um, whereas, you know, Burke and I might have some other like different constellations of four, but not um, NASCAR though, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> no, I wasn't going to yeah. go to NASCAR, but the NHL has the least stringent, uh, like drug testing policies of the four major sports. So, um, one of the things that I found fascinating was that the league is allowed 60 tests in the off season for the entire league. So that's only 60 people being randomly drug tested in the off season in a league that has hundreds and hundreds of people. Right. I mean, I don't even know how you would count all the folk, all the guys who kind of move up and down between the NHL and the minor leagues. But um, yeah, you've got 32 teams. No, 30 teams. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, all of those, and they're carrying a full roster. It's, you mm-hmm. know, dozens and dozens of players. So that does seem like a very uh, lenient drug test, drug testing system. Uh, one of the enforcers that you were probably referencing is, is a Bugard. Yes, Derek um, Bugard. So yeah. there was a book written, um, Boy on Ice, about what happened to him. And he died of, an, of a drug overdose. Uh, and after he had passed, it was 
you know, found that he suffered from CTE. Um, but during his playing time, he apparently like would befriend specimen collectors, so that's how he would get around testing oh. positive. Um, it was like so he would basically befriend them, so they wouldn't necessarily follow him into the room in which you would collect urine. So either people, other people's like specimens were there, or he had like specimens pre-arranged or something, so that he wouldn't test positive for. Um, some of the drugs if he was on them. Uh, and that's similar to Von Miller of the Denver Broncos oh, when he right. got caught for his for his drug uh, violation. He had befriended the specimen collector. Apparently that's a weak link in the system. Uh, yeah, and wasn't that... I'm trying to think back. Well, I guess Ryan Braun's issue was a little bit different, that it was just that the collector failed to mail everything in in kind of a timely fashion. Yeah, it was a chain of custody Which issue. is so disgusting, the idea that some guy had like... Ryan Braun's <laughs> urine sitting around his house, just out there for next to a the weekend. Milk. Yeah. yeah. But um, anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so, yeah, I don't know that the NHL is really looking into or taking its, like, the, its drug testing policy very seriously. And now, are the, the 60 tests they do, are those random or could they, well, be, uh, theoretically, tar- I mean, Target makes it sound sort of nefarious, but... I was just thinking, like, let's say, you know, there's now an assumption about Mike Richards that he mm-hmm. has may have a drug problem. Could they test him multiple times over a summer, or would that be an issue with the randomness of the test? I think that would be an issue with the randomness of the test. I think that might actually also violate the, the policy in the agreement. Um, but you can test, as far as I know, if he had stayed on the LA Kings... Um, you can test if you have reasonable suspicion. So he had a reputation okay. for being a hard partier and, and things like that. He so did. So I think if he'd come into work and exhibited some signs of maybe being under the influence, they could they could test him for not to cross sell here, but we have some colleagues who wrote a really interesting article about drug testing in the workplace, Nikki Hall and Steve Shaw. So if you ever feel like googling that, those two they did. It's a pretty recent. I think it just came out this in the. The last, last couple week. weeks, right? Yeah, about um, the ability to drug test in the workplace. Interesting. And, you know, another thing about Mike Richards, so the NHL and NHLPA have agreed to a um, substance abuse policy. And I think once you trigger, once you kind of get into phase one of the substance abuse policy, I believe there are... Uh, more sort of liberal testing requirements for the NHL under that since you've been identified oh. as somebody who could have a problem. Mm-hmm. What's interesting here is they just caught Mike Richards with drugs. They didn't necessarily prove that he was on them. Oh, yeah. Test him for, uh, test him for um, drug usage. So I don't think he ever triggered any of the substance abuse policy um, sort of steps in that to monitor him, um, which now that he's back in the NHL, I just, I mean... Admittedly, it's really none of my business, but I, you know, it kind of, it makes me wonder, like, did he go to rehab? What the hell happened <laughs> with this guy? Is he okay? Like, um, cause he, in all of the com- public comments that he's made, he just doesn't, you know, not acknowledging it, which makes sense because he is still, um, the court case is still ongoing. Mm-hmm. But, um, as Genevieve alluded to, he had a reputation as a pretty hard partier, whether that means he actually had a problem or was just a rich you know, athlete. somewhat attractive athlete in a With city that really loves, yeah. loves hockey. He started off playing in Philadelphia. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that necessarily indicates he had a diagnosable problem mm-hmm. or not. Um, 
Yeah, so you said he's back in, he's back playing for a team, not the Kings, of course. But. Yes, he signed, I believe it's a one-year deal with the Washington Capitals, who are the best team in the Eastern Conference, and a, a big, well, I guess they would be a big rival to his former team, the Flyers, if the Flyers weren't completely <laughs> terrible this season. Um, but yeah, he's back in the NHL, which I will say kind of surprised me based on the comments that his former general manager, Dean Lombardi, made about him as Mike Richards was on his way out the door. Um, so going back to the start of the season in October, um, after kind of all this went down with them trying to avoid his contract, Dean Lombardi um, really was really feeling his feelings about Mike Richards and decided to kind of bare his soul to um, Lisa Dillman of the LA Times. You guys, if you're interested in following up on this, because the whole thing struck me as very strange, his extreme reaction, but she wrote a pretty detailed article about it. Um, but Dean Lombardi came out and referred to it as a tragedy, and he felt like... Um, he had talked to Mike Richards, and Mike Richards told him he was fine, and he compared it to thinking your wife has been cheating on you for, like, five years, and her telling you, no, no, it's not happening, and then you find out it's true, um, you know, saying that he found his Derek Jeter in Mike Richards, because admittedly Richards was um, considered a really great leader in the um, NHL and played on the 2010 gold medal winning Canadian hockey team, Um in reading Lombardi's statements, though, the first thought that came into my mind, and I do understand that like, working on a professional sports team and working in an office are two very different things, but boundaries, dude. <laughs> like, This is such a kind of extreme, weird reaction to one of your employees screwing something up. Um, and Richards, in his most recent comments, means um, the Capitals are playing the Kings. Um, if it wasn't this weekend, I think it might be today. Uh, they asked him, are you going to talk to Dean Lombardi? And his reaction was, no, he's my old boss. Like, do you talk to your old bosses? Probably not. Look, I'm not going to talk to him. I don't care. Which seems like an appropriate reaction to, you know, interactions with your former boss. But, um, yeah, the whole Dean Lombardi kind of wigging out about the whole thing just struck me as very odd. Is he, is Lombardi known as someone who has this sort of, like, public outbursts of feelings? You know, I think he does tend to be known as a pretty, like, emotional guy. So this isn't out of character for him. Probably not. This did seem, at least, you know, setting aside the fact that it just seemed weird to me that a boss would compare his, you know, employee screwing up to um, having your wife cheat <laughs> on you. I also, just the way he was going on and on about how Mike Richards is such a disaster and, you know, like, I talked to him and he told me he was going to get his life in order and he's not and his whole world is falling apart... My first thought was, this guy, even if he were able to kind of recover from whatever was going on, he'll never get another job. Like, who would, you know, you're talking about basically making him sound like this horribly troubled junkie who can't get himself, like, <laughs> off his couch in rural Ontario. Like, who the hell is ever going to sign him? Um, now, admittedly, the coach of the, of the Capitals, Barry Trotz, is known for working well with um, guys who've suffered from um, sort of substance abuse issues, namely Brian McGratton, who I think is now might be in the Flames minor league system, and Jordan Tutu, who were both kind of well-known. Um, uh, I believe they are, they're kind of recognized as enforcers, but both suffered kind of publicly from um, alcoholism and drug issues and both played under trots, and he was able to kind of work with them and resurrect their careers. So, um, you know, it seemed like the Capitals – are also really great this season, so they weren't too concerned about taking a flyer on um, on Mike Richards. But uh, 
So I the question the reason why I asked the Lombardi question sure. <laughs> um, is because this isn't Mike Richards isn't the first time that they've tried to void a contract um, right. with a quote unquote troubled player. So you know if this is part of their mo, uh, I think it was the last year that they. Um, tried to void the contract of, and you can say his name. Yes, Slava Voinov. <laughs> yes, who was convicted of spousal abuse. He left volunt—he left the organization voluntarily, and I guess he's playing in Russia now, according to I believe to you. so, yes. Um, yeah. But they did threaten to terminate his contract. And that, you know, spousal abuse is a significant problem, and, and we're not trying to downplay it by comparing it to the possession of Oxy, but, you know, maybe the Kings have a reputation for trying to get out of these contracts with... With their players. Right. And I think they also, they do seem to have a reputation of having somewhat troubled guys on their team. Mm -hmm. Um, So you've got Slava Voinov, Mike Richards. They had an incident this summer with Jarrett Stoll, who frankly at this point is probably most famous for dating Aaron Andrews, but setting that aside, he um, was found (laughs) with cocaine um, at a pool party at Las Vegas. I cannot remember the hotel off the top of my head. He was a free agent, so they didn't really have to do anything um, except for not re-sign him. But I believe um, either he or Lombardi reacted by saying it was, you know, kind of the toughest thing they've ever had to do. Lombardi's had a rough year. <laughs> he really has. I mean, he's just been let down by everybody. His trust was... Oh, that was the other weird thing he said when he was talking about Mike Richards was, I feel like I can never trust again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's a grown-ass I man. I know. I feel bad, but he's just, like, really too emotional about this whole thing. Um and so there were those three guys. There were allegations against one of their um, famous defensemen, who I want to be very clear, the um, there was no... Ultimately, I believe the case was dropped, but Drew Doughty was accused of sexual assault um, at some point over the past couple of seasons. So they did seem to have a lot of folks who were kind of acting out inappropriately, and they've recently um, hired... Not He's not a professional counselor. He's a former NHL player, Brant Myers, but who is available for counseling for counseling for guys who are kind of struggling with um, whatever's going on in their lives. Um, but yeah, to, to Jen's point, um, they have tried to get out of contracts a couple times with sort of bad seeds on the team. And um, it does seem like Dean Lombardi might be using that as a way to make up for his poor salary cap management. Yeah. And if you look at it cynically. <laughs> <laughs> and we do. Yes. So, <laughs> so, I mean, there's, I actually have been struck, and I don't know if it's just my general awareness these days, but how many hockey players are in the news for bad behavior? Like Patrick Kane. Right, and example. Evander Kane. And, yes. No relation to each other. No. Um, right. Those two, um, I'm trying to think. I mean, my favorite, and it's really, it sh- I shouldn't laugh, but my favorite recent NHL criminal story was Claude Drew, um, who plays for the Flyers, got drunk in Ottawa and smacked a police officer on the ass, and he got arrested for that. So <laughs> That's a, probably like a pretty minor thing compared to all the things that we, we talk about on this show. But there's um, one that you brought up that I just found fascinating and I know nothing about it. So I'm going to let you talk about this guy. Sure. So I'm um, talking about, I guess, Russian players who've gotten in trouble for domestic abuse issues. Um, Semyon Varlamov, who plays, he's the goaltender for the Colorado Avalanche. He was arrested um, around Halloween of 2013 for beating up his then girlfriend. Um, the story from her perspective went that they were at a Halloween party. He got wasted. He was a horrible alcoholic, 
to be clear, these are her allegations. We are not um, saying one way or the other whether any of this is true. Um, but he was a terrible, terrible drunk, and he came home at 6 o'clock in the morning after this party, which she left from um, much earlier in the evening, and she was questioning him about where he had been. He kicked her in the chest, slammed, you know, dragged her all around the apartment um, by her hair, then um, tried to, like, injured her leg in a door or something. Um, she went to the police, I believe it was a couple days after the incident, um, and he was arrested on fourth degree. It was a misdemeanor assault charge, but he was also arrested for kidnapping, which I thought seemed weird since my understanding was the entire incident took place within um, their apartment that they shared. Um, the kidnapping charge was ultimately dropped, as was the assault charge. Because the kidnapping charge made no sense. Right, yeah. So I did look up, under Colorado law, fourth degree kidnapping means taking someone and moving them to another place without their consent. So I guess arguably if he was dragging her through the apartment by her hair, I mean, literally he was moving her from one place <laughs> to another without her consent, but I feel like that charge must have fallen apart pretty quickly um, since he never yes. like tried to take her from one kind of geographical location to another. Yes. Or yeah, they, he didn't try to take her out of the home. Right. He never took her to her second location, which if anybody watched Oprah in the 90s or early aughts, um, when they would have the episodes about if you get kidnapped, it was always, don't let them take you to the second location. So, <laughs> so I must have missed all of that. I think I, I watched a lot. Of, I was a latchkey kid. I watched a lot of Oprah growing up, but... <laughs> okay, so kidnapping. Yes, yeah, so she he was charged with kidnapping and third degree. Um, I think it was third degree misdemeanor assault. Um, kidnapping charge was dropped pretty quickly. What I found there are a lot of things I found odd about this case. I feel like that's the theme of today. Um, but he was able to travel and play with the avalanche throughout this entire process, which admittedly didn't last very long. He was bonded out pretty quickly. Um, but he was going out of state with them. I don't know if he ever traveled to Canada while the um, criminal case was pending. But yeah, they just went on like nothing had happened. Um, they are pretty high profile people, though. Like he couldn't. I would imagine that if he showed up, if the team showed up in Toronto and he was gone, that would have been. That's uh, true. Yeah. I mean, it's not as if we were just like everyday people traveling out of state. Somebody probably noticed if he was yes. missing. Yeah. Or maybe they remanded him to the custody of his team. Right. That could be um, the case. So he was charged, arrested in late October 2013. The case was ultimately dismissed in December of 2013. So huh. not even two full yeah, months after he was initially charged. Um, the DA's office came out and said it was because they had, um, they did not believe they could prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt because witnesses' stories started shifting. And this is where things become particularly interesting. Um, apparently... Vorlamov's girlfriend, who, um, she was here from Russia. She did not speak any English. So after this incident happened, she contacted a makeup artist who was like a friend of a friend, but who spoke Russian and who was engaged to an attorney, um, and asked for their help, basically kind of translating. Mm -hmm. Um, they brought her to the hospital and the police, as I understand it, the, um, fiance of the translator slash makeup artist, acted as her attorney for um, at least during the early part of the criminal case. Um, but it sounds like based on what happened in the civil trial, which happened quite recently and we'll get to in a second, um, it sounds like it was the makeup artist testimony that started kind of 
her witness statement that started kind of moving around and oh. um, she was repeating comments that the girlfriend had made to her um, that made it sound like uh, maybe what she was saying happened did not in fact happen. Um, so eventually the charges were dropped because they couldn't prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, the But that was not the end for sending Edvard Lamoff because his girlfriend, whose name... I'm not saying because I feel bad butchering her her name, but I believe it's Evgenia um, Vereniuk. So, right. <laughs> sorry, Russian uh, scholars who might be listening to this. She sued him in uh, civil court seeking damages. Um, she sought general compensatory and punitive damages for reduction in past, present, future income, damage to her reputation, humiliation, and emotional distress. Um, one of my favorite uh, topics in torts class in law school was intentional infliction of emotional distress, which is kind of a silly claim that no one can ever prove, but it always has very dramatic cases surrounding it. Um, she alleged that he had beat her on multiple occasions starting in November of 2012 through to October of 2013, culminating in this Halloween night assault. Um and uh, happened kind of all over the globe where they went on vacation, but eventually um, there were at least some incidents that happened in the United States, which is how they got jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. Varlamov then filed cross-claims against her for malicious prosecution and abusive process, which is a very interesting claim um, that in order to prove an abusive process claim, you have to show that the plaintiff, in this case, Farlamov's girlfriend, um, brought a criminal case whose principal reason was other than a desire for justice. I don't know how you prove that, but as it turns out, Semyon Varlamov's defense team did prove that because <laughs> that was the only claim that they found in favor, the jury found in favor of the uh, person asserting it. And um, so now... Semyon Romanov's ex-girlfriend owes him $126,000, according to the uh, judge and jury and the results in the civil case, which was wrapped up um, just a few weeks ago. A little bit of a blockbuster case in terms of the hockey world because a bunch of his teammates had to testify. Because they were all at that Halloween party. Exactly. And as did his coach, Patrick Waugh, who is oh. um, quite famous as a goaltender in his own right. Mm -hmm. um, and he now coaches the Avalanche. Um, yes, and since the incident started at a team Halloween party um, where the uh, Varlamov's girlfriend allegedly followed him into the men's room to scream at him, and it was just a whole mess, but they had, um, his teammates had to testify about using the urinal while this woman wandered into the bathroom and shouted at them. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so things, this this did not go well for Miss um, Vavrinyuk. Uh, <laughs> Um, I applaud you for trying. <laughs> thanks. I, well, you know, and regardless of whether, um, you know, whoever it did seem like kind of a, he said, she said case, you know, I, we, I just, uh, I would love to be using her name more because she is a person and it was terrible. Whatever happened or something bad clearly went on with these two. Um, but butchering the pronunciation, I also feel bad about. So wishing her the best, but, um, yeah, it seems like a really challenging, difficult situation for both of them. Is he still playing for the Avalanche? He does still play for the Avalanche. And this, you know, um, kind of to tie this in with a couple of the other cases we were talking about, the I would say the NHL is maybe one of the most diverse in terms of um, the citizenships yeah. of the personnel. So visa issues can be huge for the players. Um, and so in the case of 
Slava Voinov, the Kings player who eventually voluntarily left the team, um, he, I believe he pled no contest to uh, his the assault on his wife. The thought was he was probably going to have his visa revoked and be sent back to Russia anyway, so he kind of voluntarily left mm. on his own. But for both Mike Richards and um, Semyon Varlamov, had he been convicted, there's a serious chance they could lose their visa, meaning their ability to work in the United States, or even if they played for a Canadian team, their ability to travel back and forth. That's really interesting. Yes. I mean, you have Finnish players, you have Swedish players, uh, like at least one Norwegian player I know of, and a ton of Canadians and like Eastern European players in the NHL. That's that's a a different wrinkle than... um, I think basketball is becoming a little more international, but... um, Certainly not right. to the level and degree with mm-hmm. which uh, hockey is. Although baseball, you have you know people from Latin American countries uh, significantly in the major leagues. That's true. I guess the one issue, well, you've got the Toronto Ma- uh, Maple Blue Jays. Blue Jays. Because um, I was thinking you wouldn't have to travel. There wouldn't be so much cross-border travel when you're here. But mm-hmm. certainly um, getting a visa to get into the country in the first place mm-hmm. um, is critical and if you've got a criminal record then um, it can be challenging to get or maintain your visa um so that story actually kind of leads into what's been happening to johnny manzel because um similarly he was um accused of well actually a whole bunch of shit's been happening to him recently (laughs) Uh, not to put too fine of a point on it but the most recent thing that's happened to him was um, his girlfriend took out a protective order against him uh, because of alleged uh, abuse claims. So right. she filled out an affidavit. It's about like a five-page statement of what happened that evening. She and a bunch of friends went out to a couple of bars in the Dallas area. And um, at some point, she ended up back at Johnny Manziel's house where they got into a confrontation. He, She said that it was over like a girl that had been sort of like tangentially in the relationship because they'd broken up, gotten back together. And so there's, there was this third party out there and I don't know if it was, you know, because like cheating allegations or what have you, but they were like fighting about this girl. Um, he allegedly like threw her into a car, struck her several times. He ruptured her eardrum. Uh, she'll regain her hearing in time. Um, and you know, she was pleading the whole time, like, please like just, drop me off, like, you know, don't, I don't want to go anywhere with you. Mm -hmm. Um, He eventually dropped her off at her apartment, and then he threatened to kill himself. And that's that's not good. No, and that's when she called the police, and I don't know if you recall, it was right around when the Super Bowl was happening, or at least the week leading up to the Super Bowl, like, helicopters were out there searching for him because of the threat of suicide. right. Um, At the time, the police said that she was uncooperative and wouldn't allow them to take photographs of her injuries um, she has said, come out to say subsequently that um, she didn't want to cooperate with the police or she was hesitant to cooperate with the police because she was afraid of Manziel because he was threatening suicide. So he sort of seemingly like she didn't want to say anything else to push him over the edge. Um, so she is since cooperating protective order. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about uh, in terms of this case, and I'm sorry, I don't actually know her name. I read it. Colleen Crowley, I think, is wow. it. Wow. She's yeah. the same uh, woman who was involved in that was, incident in I Ohio was in the car. I going to ask if this was the same um, woman that was involved in his earlier yes. uh, alleged domestic violence yeah. incident. So in that one, they were driving on a 
freeway in Ohio when other people called to report um, an incident happening that they thought was domestic violence and uh, Manziel was eventually pulled over by either like the Ohio police or the Ohio state troopers. Um, and you know, he was let go cause they were able to explain what was happening and it was like a, a miscommunication of some sort. Um, but one of the interesting things to me, and this is purely from like the workplace perspective, not from the, the criminal uh, aspect is the Browns have come out and said, we are cutting him by March 9th. That's the first day that we can cut him from our team. Right. Uh, currently there is an investigation going on both criminally for the Dallas police, but the NFL. Um, so I don't know if you, you're probably aware, but the NFL, after the Ray Rice incident, hired Lisa Friel, who is the New York attorney, a New York attorney, to sort of head up their, like, uh, domestic violence, sort of domestic abuse, um, division, right. or to enforce the policy that has come out in the last, like, year about, uh, claims of domestic violence, and not just sort of spousal or partner, but this also, uh, includes, like, children or anyone in your household. Or... Right, because she was involved in the Adrian Peterson incident where he was accused of beating up his... His kid. Kid, yeah. right. So they're currently in the process of investigating, and they're, I, they're working with, um, the Dallas police and trying to, um, get to the bottom of it. But um, if she doesn't get her investigation done soon enough and he's cut by the NFL, so he, I mean, essentially, like, he's no longer an employee of the league. He's just a person that's out there who has right. ties to the league but is no longer an employee. So do you then say um, we're going to try to get this done sooner so we can basically levy the discipline on him or do we just wait till he gets picked up by another team if he does get picked up by another team because i mean ray rice hasn't been picked up by another team uh so has ray rice's suspension been lifted because i remember the sequence of events i think it was he got suspended for two games and then roger goodell saw the video and that's how he figured out what caused a woman to look like a fucking corpse in an elevator took seeing the video from inside the elevator saying that aside then he got suspended indefinitely, but I could I can't remember it if his been, it has yeah, been lifted. Has been okay, because um, yeah, so he would be able to play for another team if, if they, they resigned were, him. Resigned him. So, like, what happens to Johnny Manziel? Does his like discipline, whatever it's going to be, mm-hmm. um, you know, just come to the start when he gets picked up by another team? And so I was just sort of curious about that, how that works logistically um, mm-hmm. under the new policy. Um, it is if it is found that he did use physical force against Ms. Crowley, um, the first incident incident is you know punishable by six games or more. Wow. Uh, the second one, you can be banned for life, and a criminal conviction isn't necessary. Um, uh, and there's like the the policy is actually really very wide ranging because it has like counseling components for victims of violence and uh, and also counseling for the perpetrators in addition to you know, just the regular workplace suspensions. Uh, you would think from like an evidentiary perspective, regardless of when, um, you know, the timing between finishing up the investigation and when he might get cut from the Browns, you'd think that they would, the NFL would just want to keep moving forward and it just wouldn't be able to implement the discipline until yeah. he got re-signed. That's what um, I assume would happen. But it also seems weird to me investigating somebody who, you know, if he never gets re-signed, so you've done this investigation that goes nowhere mm-hmm. because... Um, He's not playing in the NFL anymore. I'm sure somebody is going to re-sign him. Probably Jerry Jones, but we'll uh, 
I guess we'll find out in a few months. Yeah, I the last that I had heard was that he Jerry Jones wasn't interested in re-signing him, and maybe oh. he's finally had this like come to Jesus moment after all. After the, Greg Hardy, yeah, after <laughs> Greg Hardy. But I can't imagine that because uh, like the ego on that man probably would not make himself aware enough to say like, oh, maybe I should like pass on Johnny Manziel. Right, and considering Greg Hardy, I mean, threatened. Tom Brady, mm-hmm. and he's a person who, at the very least, owns an insane <laughs> number of firearms and probably threatened to murder his ex-girlfriend, and Jerry Jones is like, oh, whatever, no oh, big deal. Oh, you forgot the misogynistic comments about Tom Brady's wife. Oh, right, yes. yeah, which was basically Greg Hardy started it, and then Jerry Jones really doubled down on um, how beautiful Giselle is, which just seemed completely unnecessary. (laughs) Um, But yeah, Jerry Jones, I feel like he would be the only one who would be dumb enough or genius enough to sign Johnny Manziel. The idea of Johnny Manziel being quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys just sounds like a uh, horrible life decision for him (laughs) since nothing good is going to come of that, even if Tony Romo comes back and he's a backup. um, Just seems like he's asking for trouble, especially considering his own father came out publicly and said, if my kid doesn't get help, he'll be dead by the time he's 24. He's yeah. 23 now, um, which is alarming for a variety of reasons. Um, yeah, so, you know, I understand that being a part of the quote-unquote NFL family would probably afford him the opportunities to get some structured help. Right. But um, he really seems like he just needs to get counseling and go to rehab and, like, figure his shit out before even contemplating taking on another job. Well, right, and didn't he go to rehab earlier this season? Yeah. That, I mean, I guess we don't know for sure if he was under the influence when all these incidents happened, but it certainly seems like alcohol was a factor Mm -hmm. in the poor decision-making processes that Johnny Manziel has uh, been working through. So, you know, I think it's uh, based on my very minimal understanding of... uh, Treatment for people with substance abuse, um, it can take a couple of times for, you know, rehab to kind of stick, but clearly this is somebody who needs help and whether he's ultimately going to get it. And I think as you pointed out, if he's being sort of monitored or he's got an eye on him from the NFL, that could be to his benefit, but um, all the pressure and the lifestyle that comes along with it might be problematic for him. And that actually brings me to a point that I struggle with all the time in listening to people talk about things like this, which is... The NFL is a football league, and the Dallas Cowboys or the Green Bay Packers, they're your boss. It's like, I, in my own personal life, cannot imagine having to go talk to my boss or seek the help of my boss for, like, a deeply personal issue like this. Unless it's for time off. Like, because it's impacting my job. And I don't know, maybe it's just how sports works, but... The idea that somehow your employer is so incredibly responsible for you, that doesn't that doesn't seem like it's a that that's a recipe for success because ultimately they make business decisions. They don't make people decisions, right? Like so if you want someone who's going to encourage you to get the help that you need, I mean it's like it's part of your family structure. And if you don't have a family structure, you know, there are organizations out there who can help you if you are friends, but like, why would you rely on your employer? Well, I think this kind of goes back to the whole Dean Lombardi 
very extreme reaction to Mike Richards. It's the idea that, you know, maybe professional sports are very different from a normal workplace, workplace, but it does at the same time, you know, you've got to make the best decision for your team, which is ultimately a business. Mm -hmm. And that may not be the best decision for an individual player as hard as that might be. And as close as you might be to them, um, you know, it's, it's a business. Yeah. Um, so, you know, dealing with, the repercussions of that for the individuals who are playing in the business, although taken to its extreme, I guess then that's how these like concussion lawsuits in the NHL and the NFL come about um, where you know, there are allegations that I think particularly the NFL was hiding kind of concussion science um, that would have shown that they had very playing football could have very, very detrimental impacts on your health. Yeah. Cause wasn't the, um, the head physician for the NFL under Tagliabu, wasn't he like an endocrinologist or something like that? I like, believe so. And you know, I have, I admittedly have not seen the movie concussion, but my understanding from reading about the doctor who was the subject of that movie, uh, they tried to stomp on his research and keep him from going public on a mm-hmm. lot of these CTE issues, uh, which certainly is to the detriment of, the players who are sick and suffering, mm-hmm. uh, but obviously is good for the NFL's business because they can't, then they can pretend like they don't know what's uh, what's going on. And I'm not a Goodell apologist, <laughs> but I'm certainly an, a Goodell apologist in comparison to Burke. Yeah. But, um, you know, that stuff did go on, bef- that, that stuff predated Goodell. So this is not something that's just happened. I mean, this is, you know, the NFL has kind of had a longer, shadier history of this. It's not the more recent things that... Uh, people tend to like fixate or focus on. Absolutely. And I, um, I don't want to cut Roger Goodell any slack, (laughs) but that's, that's absolutely true. And I think you'll see the plaintiffs in most, both the NFL and the NHL lawsuits are much older players. So it's Mm -hmm. not folks coming up nowadays, which I think raises, we could spend an entire pod talking about the concussion lawsuits and Mm -hmm. we may very well do that. But you know, for me, an interesting question is at this point, are people playing in these leagues, you know, are they just assuming the risk that they're going to suffer horrible brain damage by the time they're in their, you know, early forties, mm-hmm. you know, fifties and just have their lives completely turned upside down, you know, for a couple of years playing at the top, I mean, at the top upper echelon of their sports, you know, I'm sure it's a huge dream that you work for so hard, but to then turn around and, you know, not be able to you know, speak to your children when you're 45 mm-hmm. years old seems like a big, a big sacrifice. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I think that you can see how various people are reacting to this because you have someone like Chris Borland who played, what, a year and a half with the 49ers and right. decided that his future meant more to him than his NFL dream and he retired from football. And um, and you have someone like J.J. Watt, and I'm not saying that he you know, is on the other extreme end, but he has recently come out to say that he understands that he – you know, will suffer from concussions like throughout his playing career. And he understands that that will have an impact on him in the future, but he continues to play. Um, and it is difficult to, I understand, you know, players who are now in their forties, fifties, sixties, who, um, you know, maybe were sold a false bill of goods at some Mm -hmm. point in their career. Um, but players now, like I can't like with all of the information that's out there for you to continue and maybe it's a custom, a lifestyle that you've become accustomed to, but to, you know, 10, 20 years from now, like, basically say, you have to take care of me, NFL. Like, I kind of have a problem with that. Yeah, and is there a sense that, um, 
Megatron, Calvin Johnson announced mm-hmm. his retirement, as did Marshawn Lynch. Mm-hmm. Marshawn Lynch is uh, not the most loquacious person, so I don't know that we'll ever really know why he left. But I wonder if there's any, if they've made any comments that they're leaving because they're concerned about their, their health. You know, long-term health. Um, I don't, you're, I don't think they have come out to say anything because I think all Marshawn Lynch has done is like Instagram, that picture of his cleats like hanging from a telephone line. Uh, He might be eating Skittles at the round table pizza down by Lake Merritt in Oakland, which, um, is near my apartment, which I probably shouldn't be saying (laughs) on something that's going to go out on the internet, but, um, (laughs) Uh, but that's one of, I guess, a hangout of his since you he's an Oakland him. native. Uh, yes. And I, I did promise Genevieve that if I ever saw him down there, I would definitely do my best to get him on the pod or at least get his, uh, reaction to, you know, retirement. I'll bring Skittles and, uh, <laughs> and try we'll to see how it goes. <laughs> um, for the Calvin Johnson, I don't think that he has actually made a statement either, but, um, I know that when his, uh, announcement was made, a lot of pundits, media people were saying like, do you really blame him for retiring from the Lions? Because yeah. the Lions as an organization is horrible, and it's kind of like Barry Sanders all over again, which is you're just going to languish in, like, mid-table to borrow a phrase from soccer. But, yeah. you know, if you're never going to get into the playoffs or, like, advance far and they've got you locked up for a really long-term contract and you will probably end your career there, is it better just to retire and, and save yourself some of that mental health headache later on? Right, um, which I would seem to me... The clear answer is yes, but, um, you know, particularly with the NFL, I think the average career is like three years or something. So it's insanely short, um, you know, for these guys, not to overgeneralize, but there are very few careers. I think even when you're kind of on the low end of the pay spectrum that you can make that much money in that short of a period of time. So the, I can see the appeal of, just saying, well, how bad could it be? And, you know, as I think young men are want to do, they think they'll live forever. Exactly. You're 22, 23 years old. Nothing bad will happen to me. Yeah. Um, And yeah, then looking back, you know, 20, 30 years later, Mm -hmm. because the idea, I think beyond just the NFL playing time is that you've been getting concussions since you were a little kid. Exactly. And the focus of these lawsuits has certainly been the, you know, top level professional leagues, but you know, if you start playing football when you're, you know, what, Pop Warner, you're mm-hmm. eight, nine years old, I mean, mm-hmm. you've been getting concussions that whole time. Yeah. Um, that actually is, is his name Chris Sash? He was a New York Giants player who recently committed suicide. He OD'd. This literally happened, like, within oh, the last Oh, right. Month. He played for, he was on the Giants. He played for Iowa in college, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So he, I think he's only been playing professional football for a year, maybe two years. I think he's only 27 years old. Yeah, he's not yeah. very, he's not very old at all. And so they, they do believe that he suffered from CTE. And if he had one or two or even three concussions um, in the NFL, because it's like a chronic condition, I mean, the CTE is brought on by Pop Warner, Pee Wee, junior high school, high school, college football. And it's, I mean, yes, you sue the NFL because the NFL has the deepest pockets, but this is this is a much bigger problem than an NFL problem. Right. And in, um, so Canadian sort of kids hockey now, particularly in uh, the province of Ontario, I think what they've done is all the kids' jerseys have a stop sign on the back of them to tell you like not to hit the kid in the back 
is it's like a warning for other small children who could <laughs> smack you in the back of the head. But um, they're trying to get, they're being much more, I guess, stringent about getting um, really violent hits and particularly also in uh, Major Junior getting trying to get fighting out of the game. Mm. Um, the Ontario Hockey League, I think, has been a real pioneer in that. Um, but that's, you know, just to kind of circle back on the hockey talk, um, it's a real... I think challenge for some players who are really great, you know, as compared to the rest of the world, they are extremely good hockey players, but as compared to these superstars in the NHL, not so much. Mm -hmm. And how do they find their place in professional hockey? Um, A great example of this, I think is John Scott, who, if anyone follows the, anyone listening to this follows the NHL all-star game. um, He was voted in on a fan vote. He is certainly, um, no offense to Mr. Scott, certainly not one of the most talented um, in terms of skill players in the league, but um, for a variety of reasons was voted into the uh, to the NHL All-Star game. And I think he talked about that, that he wasn't considered, you know, just kind of like a meathead who weren't mm-hmm. around beating people up when he played in um when he was a kid and when he played in college, but that's how he found his place on an NHL roster and, you know, trying to get comfortable with that position, which is slowly but I think surely fading away um, in the NHL in large part because of this concussion Mm -hmm. issue that it's not just hits to the head. um, It's also fighting. I mean, Mm -hmm. these are bare knuckle brawls where you're punching Mm -hmm. each other in the face and. Yeah. And it's not even, Oh, as you said, it's not even hits to head, but like whiplash, it really is just about your brain being jiggled inside of your skull. So you might not actually make contact with your head with a hard surface, it's like a whiplashy action. Because I think soccer, there's a shocking number of concussions yeah, in, and absolutely. kind of brain trauma in soccer. And it's not just from like people having headers. It's mm-hmm. the whole, um, yeah. just the physicality of the game and jerking your head mm-hmm. around can mm-hmm. cause um, trauma. I think maybe that Dennis Weidman linesman would have benefited from that giant red stop on his Right, desk. yeah. <laughs> then it would have been like, just don't hit me, please. <laughs> um I so, think the zebra stripes are supposed to get be the first indication that maybe you shouldn't crash into people, but... Um, apparently that didn't work in that situation. Yeah. Um, interesting side note, but the doctor in... Uh, doctor, the concussion doctor. Oh, Amalu. Amalu. He is a Sacramento County coroner. Oh, I thought he was in San Joaquin County. No, but Sacramento County, yeah. Interesting. So maybe we could take a road trip and try to interview say. Dr. Amalu. He has said he would stake his career on um, O.J. Simpson suffering from CTE, which would certainly explain a lot of his batshit crazy behavior over the past <laughs> 20 years. Um, <laughs> yeah, that would. I, I don't know if that would change. I mean, I think, honestly, that would change how people view him and what's happened to him. Um, he, I will say, as a, um, it's only two episodes in, but as a Big fan of American Crime Story, The People versus O.J. Simpson. Uh, they are certainly painting him as a rather sympathetic figure. Oh. Um, the most recent episode. Spoilers ahead, so you know, skip ahead if you haven't seen the show, although it happened in real life, so <laughs> yeah, I'm spoiling something that happened 20 years ago. Um, he was, it was the Bronco chase, and yeah, the whole time in the backseat, he was just really sad. All he wanted to do was be with Nicole. He just wanted to talk to his mom, which frankly, if I had been accused of murdering two people and was having the police chase me, that would be what I would want as well. (laughs) All seemed very reasonable. Um, And then when he got out of the, they showed his car pulling up to his home, 
AC jumps out of the car, abandons OJ with the SWAT team, you know, pointing guns at him. And as he got out of the vehicle, he was holding framed photos of his kids in his arms and he just kept apologizing to everybody. And, you know, keeping in mind that this guy probably murdered two completely innocent people in cold blood. So I just, I felt really bad for him. It was Cuba Gooding Jr. Just, he pulls my heartstrings. I've just, the whole thing was just terribly sad and awful and, I feel like I constantly have to remind myself that he's a horrible, horrible murderer, even if he didn't know what he was doing because he has brain damage. And even if he didn't murder those people, even though I think he did, he did assault, you know, people in his hotel room in Las Vegas over memorabilia. Right. So So he was absolutely appropriately convicted of um, assault. And now he's probably going to spend the rest of his life in jail because I think he got like a 30 year he had a very long sentence. Yeah, and he's in his late 60s, so right. yeah, that's the rest of his life in jail. Um, so that's pretty much our hockey talk, and then we had that sidetrack into the NFL and concussions and things like that. But we also had some stuff we wanted to uh, catch you up on from our last podcast, because we said we'd get back to you with this information. <laughs> um, so really quickly, Blake Griffin, he got four games um, after... So this was a four-game suspension from the team for hitting their equipment manager, um, and he will serve the suspension when he gets back from his injury. Um, this is not a league suspension. It's a team suspension, and I don't think that I've heard anything where he is appealing that suspension. Now, I think all the talk about Blake recently has been about whether they're going to trade him. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, it's I wonder if that'll impact his trade value. Um, if he has to sit out four games. he's got to sit out four games. I mean, he's hurt now. Yeah, he's got to sit out like six to eight weeks. So what's four more games on top? That's like another week, right? Right. I guess the tr- optimal time to trade him would be probably during the offseason. Although, when does his... I feel like maybe his contract expires soon, and that's why they're... We're trying okay. to trade him in season, but yeah, well, also because the Clippers are playing well without him, right? And yeah. I don't think he and Chris Paul get along so great anymore. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. I've heard that Chris Paul's a hard guy to get along with. He's yeah, he seems like he's very set in his ways and wants really people intense. to do things the way he wants them done. Yeah. He needs Cliff Paul to come along and tell him <laughs> to just relax. Um, Derek Fisher's out as the Knicks coach. He uh, he was involved in that scuffle with Matt Barnes. Um, over Matt Barnes' estranged wife. Um, you know, he's out for a number of reasons, mostly because the Knicks are not playing very well, even though they have the unicorn, Kristaps Porzingis. Um, but the, I think there were some rumblings that, like, they didn't really like how he handled himself in terms of the whole estranged wife issue. Right. It, does, it did sound like it was less of a performance issue and more of a, you are a hot mess. You bring <laughs> a lot of unnecessary drama to the team. Um and since he's an at-will employee, yeah. there's probably a... Well, he has a contract, but I'm sure there's a provision for termination. Yeah, well, will. I think they're probably just going to pay him out, too. Right. So, um, guaranteed contracts in basketball. Uh, lastly, last time we talked about whether or not the Library of Congress has a copy of Wu-Tang Clan's Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. So that's the the one-off album that they recorded that Martin Shkreli bought for $2 million. And I was curious because... The Library of Congress is our repository for everything. <laughs> so I thought, well, if if true to form, shouldn't the Library of Congress have a copy of it? And wouldn't that be accessible to the public? So there is actually a code section in um, the U.S. code. It's 17 U.S.C. section 407, and it's about copyright. And if you want essentially copyright protection, you have to deposit 
uh, for phonographs, phono records as they're called, <laughs> two copies with the Library of Congress. Um, the Library of Congress does not have a copy of everything ever made. Uh, they have a ton a of, of shit, yeah. <laughs> but not everything. So there is the distinct possibility that um, the Wu-Tang Clan has not deposited their requisite two phono records with the Library of Congress. So the Shikrelli copy might be the only one. Although that's probably not true because there's probably master copies somewhere in the possession of Wu-Tang Clan. Right, like did they turn over everything related to the album to Shikrelli? Yeah, I don't think they did. I think it's just the one. That they probably printed one or pressed one and but they probably have all the masters because I can't imagine that even if you're doing a PR thing, like you're that amount of giving away your artistic creativity is that you probably draw a line somewhere. Right. Which I would assume to be uh, a line that uh, Kanye West would be even less likely to cross. And uh, in recent news, he just released, actually, I'm not sure it's been released because he was complaining about one of his featured specialists, like not being um, ready to finish the track. But point being is life of Pablo Kanye's uh, newest album um, was at least played for the first time at his fashion show last week. And it's been week. reviewed by critics, so I don't know if they listened to like a pre-release or they listened to it from the fashion show, but uh, maybe. I know it's been reviewed by a bunch of critics. Um, and Martin Shkreli offered at first $10 million, mm-hmm. and then I think $15 million mm-hmm. to purchase the um, album and not have it released to the public, which he insisted Kanye and his managers would have to take to the board of their, an offer they'd have to take to the board of Kanye's record company, Mm -hmm. um, since it probably could have a material impact on um, their share price. And uh, it sounds like they did not, in fact, do that. And there is some word that Martin Shkreli never even had the money to purchase it in the first place. So... um, he seems to have just wanted to throw a wrench into the public's enjoyment of Life of Pablo, which is just another reason he should be thrown behind bars, never to be heard from again. <laughs> which is why Ghostface Killer called him a shithead. Um, he, uh, well, I don't know, Kanye probably could have benefited from the $15 million, considering he has come out to say that he's 53 or $63 million. $53 million in debt, which I find hard to believe, uh, if for no other reason than... Kim Kardashian seems to just like shit money. So I don't know where all of this cash is going, perhaps because they've built and sold off uh, multiple homes and can't move out of her mom's house, which is basically the extent of my knowledge about the Kardashians at this point in my life. Um, That and dad Kardashian was one of OJ's lawyers, which I was reminded of watching the people versus OJ Simpson. So Robert Kardashian. With his amazing skunk streak. <laughs> and Kanye uh, had a t-shirt, I think, at the after party for his fashion show with um, his mother spray painted on the front and then Robert Kardashian's oh. photo on the back. And I think he's selling them oh. as part of, I don't know if it's part of Yeezy season three or just a totally separate endeavor, but um, I think Kanye needs to get some sleep. Yes. Because he's been saying a lot of crazy shit on Twitter. <laughs> really doesn't seem to be a good look for him. So yeah, he might benefit from some like quiet time in that quiet room <laughs> because he did argue that Mark Zuckerberg should, Zuckerberg should invest a billion dollars in him, and all those San Francisco guys just listen to rap. They don't care about the artists behind it. So good yeah. luck to Kanye. <laughs> um, so that's it for us this time, and uh, hope you come back next time. Talk to you soon. Thanks. <laughs>